Uh, well, you probably noticed that uh, the world in which we live, uh, the surrounding culture, is very secular, uh, very materialistic, very scientific-minded. It's important for us to remember, uh, to remind ourselves in, in this secular world in which we live, that the supernatural is real, that God is real, um, that that's, that's why we're here today. We've gathered together because we all, at least uh, on paper, agree that, that God exists and that we are gathered here today to worship this invisible supernatural being. In the face of the materialism and the secularism of our age, we can be tempted, uh, even as we gather together as a church, to kind of minimize and ex- you know, put off to the side that supernatural element and to say, you know, that, really what Christianity is about is uh, you know, having an ethical lifestyle, a sense of community, a purpose for life, all of which is true. But that's not what Christianity is at its heart. At its heart, Christianity, uh, because the Bible says this, has promised uh, that you, a finite, material, physical being, can have a real relationship with the supernatural, infinite, spiritual being who created the universe. This isn't just a philosophy. This isn't just a bare religion that tells you how to live. Christianity is a relationship. And we believe that you can have a real, intimate relationship with God himself. A relationship that's just as real as any relationship you have with another person in this room because God is just as real as any other person in this room. So the goal of Christianity is not to just have good doctrine or to live a good life. It is to know God. I hope that you all agree with that. If not, we can talk later, but I'm not going to argue that point today. What I want to do is answer the question, if that's true, if the goal of the Christian life is to know and experience God, how do we do that? How does that happen? Where should we look? to try to find this supernatural experience of knowing God in a real and intimate way. It sounds good, right? To know God, to have an experience of God himself, a supernatural experience, that sounds really cool. Where do we find that? I think the first answer that many people give is that if you want to have an experience of God, you look for him on the mountaintop. That is, look for him through some intense spiritual experience. Try to find some way that you can have an intense experience on a a, a metaphorical mountaintop. And that's where you find God. So maybe you find him through uh, an intense emotional high of a prolonged period of singing and music and worship. That's where I find him, that mountaintop. Or some some might say, you can find God through a prolonged period of meditation and fasting and solitude. Or maybe some would say you would experience God, you would find God in the mountaintop of a vision, a transcendent experience, maybe an audible voice even from heaven. Those are mountaintop type experiences. And some would say that's the main way that you experience God. That's where he's found. And so they spend all their time chasing after these mountaintop experiences, trying to catch God again. And that is what the church in Corinth was doing. But it's not what the Apostle Paul recommends. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're finishing up a series in this letter, which is a letter from Paul to a church in Corinth. And as we've seen time and again in 2 Corinthians, 
One of the major problems with this church is they just don't understand how the Christian life really works. They are obsessed with glory and repulsed by weakness. And so they keep falling for these guys, these devils in disguise, who pass themselves off as super apostles. And and they, they look good, they've got flashy gifts, they've got these mountaintop experiences, they offer so much glory, and the Corinthians eat it up. And they reject Paul because by comparison, he looks weak. He suffers so much. What does he have to offer? And Paul keeps telling them, the Christian life is hard. Uh, You experience God in weakness. Jesus Christ died before he rose. And if you follow him, you're going to suffer too. We're just clay pots. We're filled with a great treasure, but we're nothing. And so here at the end of the book, the problem comes up again as Paul is challenging their assumption into how do you really experience God? How do you experience his power and his presence? The false teachers have said it comes through mountaintop experiences. And they've got stories. I'm sure they have stories about incredible mountaintop experiences they have had. And they say, if you just follow us, you will have these too, and you can know God the way we do. But Paul says, no, you've got it wrong again. Mountaintop experiences are great, they're wonderful, but they are not the main place to look for the power and presence of God. If you really want to experience God, Paul says, don't look at the mountaintop, look at the valley. Look in the valley of your own weakness and your own suffering. That is where you find God. That's what our passage is about today. This is Paul defending himself against the false teachers, and he's saying, I have had the greatest of all mountaintop experiences. I have been on Everest. I have been higher than anybody. But the greatest experience I've ever had of the power and presence of God has not been on the mountaintop. It's been in the valley of my own weakness. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So where should we look to try to find that supernatural experience of God's presence? I think what Paul's telling us here is that instead of chasing after the mountaintop experiences, we need to look in the valley of our own weakness. He starts by explaining the mother of all mountaintop experiences. And so we need to say a few things about these mountaintop experiences to start. First, mountaintop experiences are real. They're real. 
they do happen. Uh, in the first four verses of this passage, Paul describes an incredible mountaintop experience that he had. Uh, at first, it's a little confusing, right, because he says, I know a guy, right, I know a guy who had this experience. He doesn't say, I had this experience, he says, I know a guy who did. So we've got to clear up, is this Paul or is he talking about somebody else? Well, if you look at verse 7, you see that he is, in fact, talking about himself. In verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh. So the thorn was given to Paul, he admits that, so that Paul would not become conceited about these revelations. Well, why would he get conceited about something that happened to somebody else? So clearly he's talking about himself. He's saying, I had this experience, I could have gotten conceited about it, but God gave me a thorn to keep me from doing it. And then in verse 6, also, he, he, he backs that up and says it, it, it did happen to him. Uh, in verse 6, it says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. So he's saying, I, I'm trying not to boast. I'm trying, I'm trying to tell you about this without telling you about it. If I wanted to tell you about it, I could, and I would not be lying. I wouldn't be a fool, because it really did happen. But I just don't want to tell you about it. It's kind of like if you were to go to the doctor's office and, and you were kind of embarrassed about something that was going on. You'd ask the doctor for a friend. You know, like, I got this friend who has this oozing thing. And I mean, I, is there anything you could do about that? Okay, it's really happening to you, but you say it's for a friend because you want to have some distance between you and what's going on. The same thing here. Paul, the visions really happened to Paul. This is, this is Paul's experience, and he's pretty clear that it's him. But he's telling it to you in this third-person way, in the I-know-a-guy sort of way, because he wants to remove himself from it. It's almost as if he's embarrassed by it. He really doesn't want to make a big deal out of it. But it's definitely his. And the experience that he had is an incredible experience. Verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven." Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So he says he was caught up to the third heaven, which is what we would just call heaven. Okay, so the word for heaven has at least three different meanings, especially in the Greek language. It could have meant any of these three things. It could have just meant the sky, like where birds and planes fly. Uh, it could have meant outer space where the planets and stars are, and it could mean the dwelling place of God. Now, when we talk about those things, we usually just say sky, space, and heaven, right? So when we talk, we usually just use the word heaven, but in Greek, Paul would be more specific, and so he's saying, I want you to understand, I didn't go into the sky, I didn't go to Mars, I went to the presence of God. I was in the third heaven. He also clarifies that in the next verse where he says, I was caught up into paradise. He's in the presence of God. Basically, he's experiencing the same thing that John tells us about in Revelation, the same experience the Apostle John had when he was taken before the throne of God, although we get a lot more info from John, don't we? But he was before the throne of God. He saw God. He was in the presence of God in heaven itself. And he hears things. He says in verse 4, I heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. So he's in the presence of God. He's hearing things that he's not allowed to talk about. It's truly astonishing. In fact, it's so astonishing, it seems like it's got Paul's head spinning because he can't tell if he's really there in the flesh, like if God has taken his body and he's there, or if it's some sort of out-of-body experience that feels like it's, it's a, body, a bodily experience. He doesn't know. He says it two times. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was amazing. 
That's the first thing to notice in our passage is that mountaintop experiences do happen. They really do happen. The super apostles that were taking people away from Paul, they were claiming these sorts of things. They were saying, I've had these experiences. They're wonderful. And if you follow me, then you can have them too. And it's worth noting that Paul doesn't, doesn't counteract that argument by saying, no, they don't ever happen. No one ever has visions. These things don't exist. In fact, he says, no, they do happen. They've happened to me. I've had a better mountaintop experience than anyone has ever had. I think it's worth saying that because some of us respond this way when we hear about amazing experiences, mountaintop experiences that someone else might have had. We kind of say, hey, 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 settle down, settle down. Maybe a little suspicious, discount their experience, think they might be making it up or at least overreacting. And maybe they are, but the truth is, stuff like this happens. It happened to Paul. He had this mountaintop moment, this intense intense experience of the presence and the power of God in his life. And God does this sometimes. There is such a thing as a mountaintop experience. Now, I'm not saying that I know for a fact that people are getting plucked up to heaven every so often and getting to see God like this. I mean, it may be that what Paul experienced in its details is unique. But I know that God still gives these moments, these mountaintop experiences to his people. I've never had anything close to what Paul is experiencing here, but there have been moments in my life, a few moments, when I have felt the power and the presence of God with the reality that is not a part of my everyday experience. And that happens. It happens. There are times when God does bless you with that, and you know him in a way that you don't usually know him. You've probably had times like that too. Some of you have had those. It's like, it's like a dad walking along with his kid, you know, father and son just walking down the street holding hands, and then suddenly the dad picks up the son in his arms and he hugs him and he tells him, I love you. Now in that moment, nothing's changed, you know, but when they were walking along holding hands, the father loved the son, the father and son were related as father and son, those are all, all realities, it's, it's true but there's something special in that moment when the father picks up the son and holds him in his arms and tells him he loves him. The son knows more deeply, more powerfully, this is my dad and he loves me and this is wonderful. And from time to time in the Christian life, that happens. God sovereignly chooses to bless his people with these moments where he picks you up and he hugs you and you just know more deeply than you knew before. You knew it intellectually, but now you know. God loves you, he's real, and you feel his power in a special way. Now what happens though is because those moments, as rare as they might be, are so wonderful, as soon as he puts you down, you turn around and you put your arms up and say, do it again, do it again, do it again. But you don't get to live your whole life in your father's arms. And so you don't live the Christian life chasing after these spiritual experiences. You receive them when they come as a gift and a joy, but they're not the main way that you experience the power and presence of God in your lives. And that's the second thing to see is that the mountaintops are not the main place we experience God. They're real, but they're not the main place we experience God. I guarantee if the super apostles had experienced something like Paul did here, they would have made a huge deal out of it. They would have written so much more about their experience than what Paul does here. Uh, I mean, just notice 
how much trouble Paul goes to to downplay this experience. It's almost like, I've got to tell you about this, but I really don't want to because it's not that important. First of all, he had never mentioned this before. He says to them, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in heaven. 14 years ago. Now, when this letter was written, probably the church in Corinth was maybe five or six years old. Paul planted the church. He'd known these people five, six years, and he had never told them about this experience that had happened many years before. I've been here seven years. I've known you guys different lengths of time, but I'm sure even if I had only known you a week, you would probably know by now that I had gone to heaven. Probably would have come up. Paul knew these, he planted a church. He he didn't think that was relevant to get a crowd, to tell people this experience. No, he didn't didn't say about it. It had happened years before. He'd known them for five years, and just now he's finally telling them, hey, 14 years ago, by the way, I guess I forgot to tell you, I went to heaven. What? It's like it's not important. Second thing, he he only tells the story under duress. In verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He's like, you forced me to do this. I don't want to tell you the story. I don't. It's not relevant. And yet, ah, these people are talking about their vision, so I need to talk about my vision. Fine. The third thing, he tells it in third person. We've already seen that. He's doing everything he can in the very way he's telling the story to distance himself from it, to say it's not that important. And then he gives almost no detail. Did you notice that? His version of the story is very short. I went to heaven. I heard stuff I can't tell you. I don't even know if I was in my body or not. That's his whole story. If that's happened today, and we have plenty of examples to look at, there would be a book deal, there would be a movie, probably some sort of Bible study curriculum, uh, you know, uh, merchandising. It would just be, you would never hear the end of it. The apostle who went to heaven. He just gives us three verses. No detail. So why is he so reluctant to talk about this? Why doesn't he give us more information? Wouldn't it be neat to find out more about what this third heaven is like? He doesn't tell us about it because he knows that mountaintop experiences, as cool as they are and as, as edifying as they are for him personally, they are not that important. Instead, he says that everyday life matters more. So in verse 6, he says this, Though if I should wish to, wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So why doesn't he say? He says, I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what they see in me and hear from me. He says, I just want to be judged on the basis of my everyday normal life. I don't want you guys to listen to me because I've had this amazing experience and then somehow if you follow me, you'll have these too. I just want you to, to judge me based on what you've heard from me and seen in me. What have they heard from The gospel. He says, I want you to, to, to judge me based on the gospel message you've heard. I want you to... to, to to know that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead for you, and that if you put your faith in him, you can be reconciled to God. That's the amazing thing. Not that I went to heaven, but that God loves you and gave himself for you so that you can be forgiven. He wants them to know that, that, that what they've seen in him, that what they've seen, they've seen the Holy Spirit at work in a broken, weak vessel. He wants them to see that that when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves into your life and God himself empowers you to live even though you are weak and wasting away and so full of 
flaws and struggles. He says, that's the amazing thing. Not that I have to heaven. The amazing thing is the Holy Spirit lives in you. He says, don't judge me based on my experience. Judge me based on what you've heard from me and seen in me. Look at the gospel message. Look at the evidence of a life lived in the power of the Spirit, even in times of weakness and suffering. Because mountaintop experiences are great, but they are not the main place we find God. The main place we find God is in the valley, in the everyday experience of weakness and suffering. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. It's about God teaching Paul that lesson, that the main place you experience God is in the valley of your own weakness. See, after Paul had this great experience, he had another experience, and he's more open to talking about this one. And this experience is definitely a valley. So verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So he gets a thorn in the flesh. Again, it's not as much detail as we want. People speculate what exactly is the thorn. Uh, We don't know. That's the short answer. We don't know. Uh, Anybody who tells you that they know for sure, they don't. Uh, But it's probably some sort of physical ailment because he calls it a thorn in the flesh. That is, it's a a problem in his body. Got some pain in my body, a thorn in the flesh. And based on some other theories and and data, people have speculated, maybe it's an eye problem. Maybe there's trouble seeing. Uh, Maybe it is, uh, maybe he has a stutter. Some people speculated that. Maybe that's why he's not such a good speaker in public, that he's got this stutter. Maybe he's he's depressed. Who who knows? We don't know. But we know it's bad because of the way it's described. So it's a thorn in the flesh, not a light tickle on the flesh, right? Oh, and God gave me a a light tickle. No, there's a thorn. It's a stake. It's like a spear driven into you. So this is bad, painful. He calls it a messenger of Satan. So it's not good. It's a messenger from Satan. This is a bad thing. It was given to harass him, he says, or some translations say it was given to beat him. So it's a very violent word about being beaten around, slapped around by this messenger of Satan. All this just paints a picture. This is not a good thing, right? Paul is suffering. He is weak. It's a bad experience. And when he encounters this bad experience, he does a very good Pauline thing. He prays, right? This is good. Paul feels bad. He's having this terrible experience in response he prays. It says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Three times he pleads with God, take away this thorn. That's what we do, right? When bad times come and we're struggling and things are hard, we plead with God, please take this away. I don't want this thorn. Take the thorn out. This hurts. It says he did it three times. It probably means three different times, not like in some sort of magic formula. He goes, please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away but three times, you know, three different moments in his life where he's experiencing intense suffering from this thorn. He has a prolonged period of prayer, probably fasting as well, where he's crying out to God, please take this away. And you know, he's got good motives, right? Because Paul's just trying to share the gospel. And to be sharing the gospel with whatever ailment he has, has got to be difficult. And so he's saying, God, just please take it away. I'm trying to get to this place. And it's just so hard with this thorn in the flesh. I'm trying to share the gospel with these people, but I'm just broken and worn down. I can't do it. It would make so much sense for you to remove this and empower me that I might be able to do what I can do in all my strength. 
And God says, no. You would think that a guy who had the privilege of visiting heaven and hearing words that he couldn't repeat, you would think that that guy could expect God to cut him some slack and give him some healing. But he doesn't. Verse 9, God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Why would God say no? Why would God say no to Paul? Why would he leave him in the valley of weakness and suffering instead of rescuing him and taking the thorn away, delivering him from the valley? Why didn't God take Paul right back up to the mountaintop? I would say it's because he loves Paul that he does it. He refuses to heal Paul because he loves Paul. And you might say, that's crazy talk. If he loved Paul, he would heal Paul. If he loved Paul, he would deliver him from the valley. To not heal someone when they ask for healing is unloving. That's what we think when we're in the valley, right? God, if you love me, you would take me out of here. But that's not how God works. He doesn't always show his love by delivering us from the valley. But he always shows his love by being with us in the valley. Look how God did that for Paul. I see two steps here. The first step is that he gave Paul the weakness so that Paul would not be full of himself. He didn't want Paul to be full of himself. So in verse 7, we've read it a couple times, but, but notice he says twice in this verse that the thorn was given to keep him from being conceited. He says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me. And at the end he says, to keep me from being conceited. So two times. Yeah, it was, a, it was a messenger of Satan, but ultimately it was a gift of God. That God brought this weakness into his life so that Paul would not become conceited. God knew that this mountaintop experience would have an inevitable effect. That if left unchecked, Paul would become proud of what had happened. He'd become arrogant and self-reliant. He would say, look at me, I'm the guy who went to heaven. I had this great experience. I'm special. That over time, that sort of attitude would create a self-reliance in Paul, a prayerlessness, a lack of dependence on God. This is what happens when things go well for us. This is a human response to success. This is my testimony, generally. When things go well, if my prayer life is, if my, if my uh, comfort level and success in life is going up, my prayer life is going down. Right? Because that's what happens in my sin. I say, oh, things are good. I don't need God. I'm okay. But God didn't want that to happen to Paul. He wanted Paul to be in close, intimate, real relationship with him. He didn't want Paul to be self-reliant and prayerlessness and, and be prayerless and to, to be conceited. God took him to the valley. And he gave him a thorn and he made him weak. That's the first step. But then the second step, this is where the grace comes in, is as soon as Paul was empty of himself, God filled him with his strength. As soon as Paul was emptied of himself, God filled him with his strength. That's what verse 9 is about. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, God's grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Once Paul was stripped of his pride, once he was utterly dependent on God, God didn't fix his weakness. He did something better. He gave him his presence. God filled him up. 
the picture I have in my mind is, is just all of us, we're just a bunch of buckets, okay? I'm a bucket, you're a bucket. And uh, we're all pretty full of ourselves, generally. Especially when things are going well, um, we've got a good job, plenty of money, good health, kids are doing fine. We're f- that fills us up. Things are good. My bucket's full. And when, those are, when, when that's what's happening, we can be pretty content to rely on ourselves. And we might come to church every once in a while, or maybe even regularly, but, but it's just for a top-up, right? Like, I'm good, I got my life full of all this stuff, and just a little bit of God to get me to the top, that'd be perfect. But what does God do in that situation? God doesn't want just a little bit. He doesn't want to top up your life. He doesn't just want the top centimeter of your bucket. He wants to fill you up. And if you knew what was good for you, you'd want that too. So what does God do? God punches a hole in the bottom of our bucket. He springs a leak. And you start to drain out. All the things that that you were trusting in, he begins to take away. I don't know what it looks like in your life or your story. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe your kids get in trouble. Maybe you get sick. And you just start to get emptier and emptier and emptier as all the things that used to fill your life leak away. And of course, what happens when we start to notice our level is dropping? We start to pray. We cry out to God, God, stop the leak. Stop the leak. I'm feeling empty. Please shut the leak and fill me back up with the things I used to have because I liked it when it was like that. So we pray and we cry out, kind of like Paul did. Take this away from me. Take this away from me. But God doesn't want you to be full of yourself. So sometimes he says no. And instead of stopping the leak, he lets you get good and empty. And then he fills you with him. But before he can do that, he has to make room. He's got to make room in the bucket. He's got to make you weak so there's room for his strength. He's got to get rid of you so you have room for him. It's paradoxical. It is is a paradox. But it's true. When you are weak, then you are strong. Ask anybody who's been a Christian for a considerable length of time, and they will tell you, it is the hardest times in my life when God has been most real to me, and I've experienced the most growth, and I have known his power and his presence more than any other place. That's where it happens. That's where it happens. It happens in the valley. It's in the hard times that bring the growth. It's the deepest valleys where everything but God is stripped away that you realize, finally, that God is enough. And when you get that, it changes your perspective. Just notice how Paul's perspective changes. The valley, even though he's asking initially for it to be taken away, take the thorn away, I don't like this. After he hears this perspective from God, my grace is is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. When he gets that, now he begins to rejoice. He says, don't take it away, I want more of this. Verse 9, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Gladly. Verse 10, he says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. And that's a, that's a lame translation there. The word that's translated content is the same word that shows up in, uh, in the baptism of Jesus when the Father says of the Son, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the word. Well pleased. So the Father doesn't say, This is my Son in whom I'm content. Like, He's not really measuring up. I'd like something better, but I'll be okay with this. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. I love Jesus. This is fantastic. Paul uses the same word here to say, I am well pleased with weakness. Not just putting up with it, but I rejoice. Why? Because he loves to suffer? Is Paul a masochist? No. It's because he knows that those are the moments where he gets God. 
a totally different uh, perspective on life. The values of weakness, the seasons of suffering are not things to be avoided at all costs, not things to be gotten out of as fast as possible, but they're gifts from God. They are God-given leaks in your bucket to make more room for Him. I understand this is hard, and, and it may sound like I'm romanticizing suffering, so just hear this. Suffering is bad. It is a messenger of Satan, right? Paul says the thorn is a messenger of Satan. It's a result of the fall. It's a, it's, a, it's a consequence of sin. We won't have suffering in the new heaven and new earth. So it's fine and good that when you feel bad and things are tough, to, to pray and to say, God, please take this away. Right? That's totally fine. Suffering is bad. But the main point of this passage is that in spite of all that, in the hands of a loving God, suffering and weakness are also good because it's in the valley that you meet God. And that's what we want. That's what we want. So if you're in the valley today, and I suspect that in some way, all of us are in a valley today. I want you to know this. God is not hiding up on the mountaintop waiting for you to come up and get him. He's not waiting for you to climb up and to, and to be good enough and to get your life back together so you can get back with God because he's up there in the mountain and you're just down in the valley. That's not how it is. You don't have to chase after him to try to get some intense experience to find God again. God is with you in the valley. It's his favorite hangout spot. He loves empty buckets. He loves to fill you up. So I want to encourage you to try to tweak your prayers a little this week. This is the practical application as we end. Just try to tweak your prayers a little bit. It's okay to pray the way you've been praying, you know, to pray like Paul did. Please take the suffering away from me. You can keep doing that, right? I try to do that for us every week as we pray up here. You can keep praying that, but to that prayer, add this prayer. Please show me your power in my weakness. Not just get me out of this as fast as I can, but while I'm here, help me get this paradox, this your grace is sufficient for me, your power is made perfect in weakness. I want that. I don't know if I'm experiencing that right now, but you tell me that's what it is, so here I am. I'm in the weakness. Now you show up. Do what you do. Fill me up. I feel pretty empty. Fill me up. So keep praying for deliverance. That's it's fine. That's good. Don't feel guilty about that. But to that, add this prayer. God, in my weakness, while I'm here, because you're doing this. I know you're doing this. Please show me your strength. And I believe, because I believe the Bible, I believe that when that happens, when you pray that, God will show himself to you. You don't need the mountaintop experience. You will find God in the valley.